Well, hey, my name is Mark, and I get the joy of serving here at LifePoint Church on staff. And just like Pastor Mike, I want to thank you guys for being a generous church. Um, we love to talk about the things that you guys do and your generosity does, both locally and globally. And one of the things, though, that your church does that makes an impact here in this place every single week. So every week, there are almost a thousand kids and kid point. That is a lot of diapers. Your generosity has bought a lot of goldfish and stickers and crayons and band-aids, and it's allowed us to minister to your kids and teach them that God loves them and, and help them to make friends and put adults in their lives that can show them care. And your generosity allows it to happen. And then on Wednesday nights, there's another couple hundred middle and high school students that are loud and proud and full force here on Wednesday nights. And I want you guys to know that your generosity is making a difference and making an impact in the future. When I walk through Kid Point, when I'm here on a Wednesday night, man, I'm like, our future's in good hands. Like God is doing something still. And so thank you for your generosity. It allows us to minister to kids and students. That's right. Hey, since you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts. Um, we're gonna be in chapter 15, but before we dive into today's message, I've got a question for you. So here it is. Does pineapple belong on pizza? All right, who says yes? Who says no? Ooh, that's closer than last service. All right, here's another one. Is cheerleading a sport? I see some, all right. Who says yes? Who says no? Oh, yes is way outweigh the no's this time. Big time. So I help lead our internships on Sunday nights, and a lot of times we'll ask kind of these yes or no questions. They actually helped kind of put this message together today. Um, but there's a question. I used to lead kids and kids' ministry for a long time, and if I ever wanted to get kids kind of worked up, it's such a simple question, but it can get teenagers worked up. It gets a grown adult men worked up. Who's the best superhero? Okay. Oh, some of you are already yelling it out. You're like, hey, I'm telling you who it is. <laughs> I still hear him. Now, here, let me tell you. I was speaking at a camp, and it was a bunch of boys there, and some of their dads were there. And they were getting into this debate of who's the best superhero. And there was two boys in particular. One kind of a smaller kid. One was a tall kid, and the tall kid was such a pain sometimes, but that's all right. Um, they had narrowed it down to two superheroes. I don't know how they got to these two, but it was Hulk and Superman. And they were going back and forth, and it was the second day of camp, and I remember the one boy, he looked at the other and he said, well, how about I Hulk smash your chest? <laughs> the other one, he turned around and goes, how about I Superman punch you in your big fat head? And I'm like, okay, boys, knock it off, chill out. So I turn around a couple minutes later, and I'm sure if you've been in school at any point, you know the sound, that there's a fight going on. <laughs> and I turn around, and the smaller kid who happens to have four older brothers who are all state champion wrestlers has the bigger kid wrapped up like an anaconda, rear naked choking him, and there's two dads standing there just laughing. And I'm like, 
what are you guys doing? So we broke it up. They moved on. There are questions that can lead to disagreements. And today we're going to look at a question that led to a disagreement in the early church. And it's actually one of the first big disagreements and conflicts that they had to work out. And it's incredible, incredibly important question that has impact on you even today. It's not as cheerleading a sport, does pineapple belong on pizza? It's something way bigger than that. And the question is, what does a person have to do to be saved? And before we jump into the middle of this dispute in Acts 15, we need to kind of close out chapter 14. So Paul is with his friend Barnabas, and they're traveling towards and around and throughout the city of Antioch. Antioch's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and Antioch is primarily Gentile, which means it's not Jewish. So it's a Greek Roman city. And Paul and Barnabas have been celebrating and telling people about God, the one true God. They're saying God has done something incredible in this world. And they go around the entire region proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. The gospel that says God sent his son to pay for your sins. He rose from the dead. He wants to be Lord of your life. They're telling them, embrace him as Lord and follow Jesus. The Gentiles all over the region, they're like, we're in. Like Jesus as Lord, we've been, we've been hearing Caesar as Lord. Jesus sounds way better than that. And a God who loves us and cares about us and wants to have a relationship with us, man, all we've known is all these thousands of pagan gods. Man, we, we'll, we'll receive this, we'll accept this. And so people all over the region are becoming followers of Christ, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And that's where we pick up in chapter 15. And chapter 15 feels like it should start with, you know, the little thing that says, a few minutes later. Um, everybody go, uh-oh. Yeah, that's how verse 1 starts off. 15, verse 1, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the very first Christians were all Jewish, and not only that, they all kind of stayed pretty much in Judea, so the area surrounding Jerusalem. And when they hear that Paul and Barnabas are leading Gentiles to becoming followers of Christ, they want to make sure things are being done right. Um, so they flow into the city of Antioch, and they come in behind Paul to make sure people they just know the rest of the story. So this is the message they give to the Gentiles. They're like, okay, Paul's, Paul's cool, um, but he didn't tell you everything. Um, you're actually gonna need surgery. This is salvation by surgery. Um, it's addition by subtraction, actually. So this is what's gonna have to happen. And their message is this, keeping the law of Moses is a condition for salvation. And they're saying, and to prove that you're keeping the law, you must be circumcised. And if I was one of those Gentiles, I don't, I mean, I'd be like, where's Paul? Like, bring back Barnabas. What is this? Are you sure? This isn't what he told us. Well, Paul and Barnabas find out what's going on, and that's where we get to in verse 2. It says, and after, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. And First off, I love this. No small dissension. Um, if you come to me today and say, hey, me and my wife are having no small dissension, 
What that really means is the same thing that me and my wife did on the drive from Atlanta the other day. We have a really big fight, okay? No small dissension means really big fight. So they have no small dissension and debate with them. I, this also, it's like Paul wanting to put them in a rear naked chokehold spiritually, kind of that way. And so Paul and Barnabas and some of the others are appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they have this big, huge question. And see, they didn't have New Testament scriptures. Most of those weren't even written yet. This was only 20 years after Jesus' death, so here's what they had. They're like, hey, we knew our friend Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have each other. So we need to figure this out together. So in verse 3, it says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. Now, before we go, whenever I see something peculiar in Scripture, I really I have to point it out. So take a look. It says, Believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. And when I see weird things, I'm like, okay, the Pharisees, you mean the same guys that tried to trap and trick and mess with Jesus all the time? They're now, be what happened here? Because they saw miracles, they saw all kinds of things. Here's what happened. When a guy says, I'm gonna die, be buried, and then raised from the dead, and then you see it happen, you're probably gonna do what he says, and that's what happened here. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. There were Pharisees who saw a resurrected Christ and it changed everything. The resurrection changes things. Many times though, today we're gonna to be talking a lot about grace and a lot of times we look back at the Jewish believers who are trying to keep this circumcision and we're like, guys, what's with all the chop-chop talk? Like, can we chill out with this? But we have to appreciate something and Think about something that was really difficult for them. They were receiving from God an entirely new system, a new way to relate to him. So imagine that at one point to atone for your sins, it was with blood of bulls and goats, and now you have to rely on the blood of Christ. You were able usually to have something that you could touch, taste, feel, physically see, and now they're trying to make it just something that you just have to believe by faith. This is so hard and so unsettling to them. And it feels like everything is getting out of control. And how many guys know when things start to get unsettled, what do we immediately do? We try to get back control. And that's what they're feeling right now. Something we all need to realize is it's easy to recognize the right side of truth when you're not living in the tension of a dispute. It's easy to look back at certain issues and be like, why would they do that? Why did they think that way? But a lot of times we've been in the same kind of disputes and we can't really see the truth. All we can see is that we're right. However, although it's not perfect, this passage also will show us a decent example of conflict resolution. The Pharisees and the people who wanted to remain in control, they're willing to state their case, but they're also willing to listen to what the other side has to say. So my question is, what if followers of Jesus, me, you, us, 
What if we decided let's get on the same page about Jesus and we'll work out the rest as we go? He's the main thing. So we jump back into verse 7. Peter is going to speak, and it says, After much discussion, Peter, the disciple, the friend of Jesus, got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? So for years, Peter had a hard time with accepting that Gentiles could be believers. And remember, Peter's Jewish. And he was kind of hanging on to the old way. A little bit of law, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of circumcision, a little bit of the cross. But now Peter's woken up to the fact that God is doing something new in the world for everybody. Peter gets up and reminds him, guys, remember, um, I was minding my own business in Joppa, and then I had this really weird dream, and I went to Caesarea. And I, he's telling this story about how he, meant to, uh, he spoke to a Gentile centurion. And he says, I told you guys this, you know, but there's this big part here. It says, but God saw the heart. I love this line. It's amazing. But God who knows the heart. God who looks past their offensive to us type of Jewish ways, he's saying, God accepted them and he gave them his Holy Spirit. So some of you, this is all you need to hear today. God who knows the heart. God who's looking beyond your behavior beyond your past, your background, your baggage, any label that somebody has put on you. God who knows your heart is ready to accept you and to give you his spirit just like he did to them. So after this little speech, Peter kind of gets up and he says, guys, let's be honest. We're not good at keeping this law either. This is so difficult he says, I'm, how hard is it to stay ceremonial, ceremonially clean when you're a carpenter and you cut yourself? There's just all these customs and rules and laws. And some of us, we live a long ways from Jerusalem. And guys, we're not even good at doing this. And we've been raised with these customs and laws ever since we were kids. He says, why in the world would we try to get a group of people who didn't even grow up this way, grow up with this background, how are we going to get them to accept all these laws just to become followers of Jesus? Peter affirms what we discovered Jesus saying in Matthew 11. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. When we try to carry the weight of our sins on our own shoulders, it's always going to be crushing. And that's what them trying to follow the law, it was just, it's always going to feel crushing to them. And Peter wants them to see, guys, if we want them to have to take all of this on, just to become a follower of Jesus, how realistic is that going to be? And then what comes next is, is really, really subtle, but it's super, super important. Verse 11, he says, No, we believe it is through gr the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. And here's the subtle part, just as they are. He says, we believe it's through the grace of Jesus that we Jews are saved as the Gentiles are. So 
They've been saying, these Gentiles need to become more like us. And he's saying, actually, we need to move in this direction, the direction of grace. They don't need to move in the direction of law keeping and works. We need to move in the direction of grace. We all need to move in the direction of God and what he's doing, and it's something new. He's saying, I saw God accept Gentiles and move and give them his spirit. Setting aside all of traditions, he still gave them him. And it aligns again with what Paul speaks in Romans. Paul says, God shows no favoritism. He's saying there is no Jew, Gentile. It's like we're followers of Jesus. Peter wants them to understand this is something new. This is a new promise, a new covenant built on grace. This isn't Mosaic Law 2.0. This is following Jesus, our risen Lord. What he wants them to see is salvation isn't about a bunch of what's. What do I do? What do I do? He said salvation is about a who. It's not about what you're doing. It's about who you're following. And then James gets up. Verse 12 says all, well, first Paul and Barnabas stand up, says all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, so this is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So Peter has spoken with boldness about what God is doing, and he's passionately shared his experiences. And then it says that Paul and Barnabas, they get up, and they share story after story of what God is doing. And then James stands up. James is another peculiar one, kind of like these Pharisees. And I always have to point these things out because this is something we all need to understand whenever I see something in this type of life change. So here's the question. What, if, how many of you guys have brothers or sisters? What would it take for your brother or sister to convince you that they are the Messiah? If my sister said, hey, I'm the Messiah, <laughs> I'd say, um, really? Um, I have a whole list of reasons why that can't be true. Reason number one, remember the time you threw scissors at my head? Yeah, probably not the Messiah. As we read through scripture, it tells us that Jesus' family, including James, struggled with this. And it wasn't miracles, it wasn't the parables, it wasn't all the things that he had heard about Jesus doing. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it specifically names James as one to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. Once again, just like that happened with the Pharisees, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Seeing his dead brother alive, walking, talking, James is now a full-fledged believer of Jesus Christ, And from the moment he encounters him, he's like, I'm all in, let's go. And now we see James serving as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And James has heard powerful testimonies and he's heard all these experiences from Peter and from Paul. But James wants them to realize that their experiences actually line up with scripture and with the character of God. 
Our experiences can't be the thing that guides our faith. We have them, and God gives them to us, and they're important. But if we let only our, if we let only our faith be only built on our experiences, that can get us into trouble. So we have to say, does this experience align with who we know the character of God is in the, in the scriptures? So James is saying, actually, all these experiences actually line up with what scripture has already said. And at the end there, he actually quotes the prophet Amos. He's saying, guys, God said he was going to welcome in the Gentiles. This is, this is now happening. A long time ago, God said this is going to happen. This all lines up. Then, as the leader, James, calls the meeting to a close to state his judgment. Now, this could go all kinds of different ways. But what he says is a huge seismic shift in the course of the early church. And it starts with a massive, powerful sentence. Verse 19. It says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Now, Christians, I want to talk to you for just a minute. Now, this doesn't apply to any of you guys in the room, so I'm just going to talk to Christians online. How's that? Um, the next time you don't want to let somebody in church because they look different, they make you uncomfortable, you don't really like what's going on, something about them offends you, I want you to remember this. You're a Gentile. And without the promise of grace, you wouldn't be here either. If you're a barrier to someone coming to Christ because you're front-loading the message of the gospel with a list of you have to do this first or a bunch of how-tos, that is not God's will. And if you're doing that, you're not in God's will, you're in God's way and you need to move. I know sometimes... We want to protect the purity of our, our family, our church, our little circles. But in the end, Jesus didn't die on the cross to protect little circles of safety. Jesus didn't show up to play it safe. He showed up to change the world. Jesus hugged lepers. He hung out with thieves. So if you're looking for safe, Christianity is not where it's at. He died on a cross so that we could be a part of helping every man, woman, child, no matter who they are, no matter what label they have, no matter what baggage they bring, could know who he is. And I am glad that we are committed to being a church that is not going to make it hard for people to come to Christ. James then ends his conclusion with some next steps. We're all about next steps here at LifePoint Church, and James is going to give them some next steps as well. Verse 20, he says, But should write, you should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has, been, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in synagogues. So James understands some things. He understands that Gentiles and Jews need to be able to get along and to worship together. And part of why he's giving these directives are to help Gentiles and Jews live in harmony. Verse 21 points to the fact because it says, for generations, they've been taught the law of Moses. So for generations, these Jewish people had been raised with certain dietary restrictions and customs and, and different things. And what James is trying to tell them is Gentiles, 
out of consideration and because we are people who love, honor some of these customs and move in their direction in a little bit the same way they're moving in yours. And he's also giving them some guidelines saying, hey, Gentiles, you know the things that you grew up with that are normal to you? Because honestly, in their culture, idolatry, sexual immorality, that was completely normal to them. He's saying no more of that. That doesn't honor God. That doesn't love people. So he's giving them some specific things that they can do. The same thing is true for us. He's saying, he wants them to understand grace is how you're saved, but here's some next steps. And the same is true for us. We're saved by grace, but when we're saved, God loves us enough to have a new plan for our life. We get to place our lives fully in God's hands, express our love for him, and find our way that we can live in harmony with other people. God's grace is what saves us, but it's also what changes us. And grace is a big, beautifully complicated word. And so I prayed, God, give me some kind of sticky visual so I can help people kind of grasp what this is. And so grace, first off, it's a gift. A gift is something you're given freely. There's nothing we can do other than just receive the gift of grace that God wants to give to us. And in this gift, I have a pair of glasses. So when I was nine-ish years old, I got my first pair of glasses. How many of you have ever, like, how many wear glasses and you put them on for the first time? I remember when I was nine or 10 years old and I put on my glasses, I'm like, oh, everything's not supposed to be blurry. This is incredible. Grace is a gift kind of like a pair of glasses. So here's the thing about this pair of glasses. When I put them on, I look a little bit different. I see completely different, but it's not because anything I've done, it's because the lenses just work. There's nothing we can do to like activate grace. God's grace is just there, it just works. It doesn't judge us, it just changes the way that we see things. It corrects our vision. The doctor knew exactly the prescription that I needed and they gave them to me so that I could see differently. We serve a, a great physician who wants to offer us his grace so that we can see the world a little bit differently and so that we look a little bit differently to the world that sees us. That's what grace is like. All we have to do is realize, man, I, I actually can't see very good. Accept it, believe it, and let it transform you. Let God correct. In grace, there is no condemnation, but there is correction. Because grace isn't an excuse to just go on living a sloppy life. Grace is the power not to have to live in sin. It's not an excuse to just bathe in sin. Now, what we have to be careful to do is not see these directives at the end of this passage as some kind of list of X, Y, Z of how to be saved. That's not what James is saying. A lot of times, churches, denominations, different people try to say, well, you're not saved unless you do. I'm gonna clear that up. That is not the case. The big question was, what must you do to be saved? There's no X, Y, Z, there's no before, there's no after, there's only one thing. That brings me to my first point today. Believe in Jesus. It's my first point. It's my main point. It's my last point. It's the only point. It's the title of my message. It's the focus of this passage. It's everything about this. Believe 
in Jesus. You want to be saved? Believe in Jesus. And you may be asking, saved from what? And I'm going to reframe that. How about not saved from what, but saved for what? You're saved for forgiveness and restoration of right relationship with God, the creator of heaven and earth. You're saved for a new purpose, to be a world changer and tell everyone about his love. You're being saved for God to give you his Holy Spirit to comfort, guide, and direct your life. You're being saved for a new kingdom. Not just a future kingdom in heaven, but a better kingdom brought here to the earth by you walking and living in grace. A life where even when you're at your worst, God still gives you his best. Believe in Jesus. If you came here today feeling beat up and ashamed because of the mistakes you've made, and man, they may be big, God is always bigger. You might have been hurt. Maybe you've got some past church hurt, some past religious mindsets that were all about doing good and being good enough, and you're feeling that weight and conviction and constraint. That is not grace. Jesus wants you to be free from that today. Believe in Jesus. Now, some of you have never given your life to Christ. You've never surrendered. You've never received this gift. You've never put them on and admitted, okay, I've, I need to change. I need to look different. I need to be different. You've never surrendered. Today's gonna be your day. God loves you. You belong here. We need you here. You're accepted. It's awesome because today is actually Baptism Sunday. And I want you to know, baptism isn't what saves you, but it's kind of like putting on that pair of glasses saying, I'm in. Look at uh, I'm all out, I'm all in. It's not what saves us, but it's an act of obedience showing that I've given my entire life to Christ. Receive the free gift of grace, believe in Jesus. Others, Christians, you're like, I got Jesus. Let me encourage you to really walk out this gift of grace. It's easy for us as followers of Christ to slip into just a doing mode. I read my Bible, I came to church, prayed over my meals. We become box checkers, rule keepers. Check, check, check. But then we sometimes still feel convicted that I'm not doing enough, I'm not good enough. We become way more focused on doing than being. Here's what we're doing. We're squinting our way through life. I can do it on my own. And we're taking grace and we're just saying, I've got it, but it's in my back pocket. At times, life can be hard. And it feels like all we can focus on is just doing life. So my dad died suddenly three months ago. I was talking to him one day and the next day, he's gone. And it's brought up a lot of pain, a lot of stress, a lot of questions. One of the hardest ones I keep asking myself is, man, did I tell him enough about Jesus? And to be honest, instead of leaning into grace and reminding myself that I need to trust 
and believe in Jesus, I immediately started focusing on getting busy, my own work, my own effort, my own checkboxes, my own squinting my way through life. Don't show pain. You got it. Because I'm just like any of you. We all do this. Because just like any of you, my natural bent as a human is to appear better than I really am. Just like the Pharisees. Just recently, some professionals that are way smarter than I am told me that I'm showing all the normal signs of depression. And honestly, I usually, I hate being up here preaching. It's just not something that I'm, but this message has been a huge gift to me. Because as I wrote it, God was able to remind me, hey, stop squinting. My grace is available. It's more than enough. Believe in Jesus. This doesn't mean that I'm going to stop working on things. It doesn't mean that I'm going to stop listening to my doctors or counselors. That would be foolish. I'm so grateful that God put those people in my life. But it means I'm going to remember that it's not just about me working and figuring it out all on my own. That's law. It means I have to remember that I have a gift of grace that's given to me not just once when I was saved, but every single day of my life, I have the gift of grace. It's remembering that we serve a God of resurrection. Look at the Pharisees, look at James, the resurrection changed everything. A God who takes tragedy and transforms it into his strategy. That's the power of the resurrection. The tragedy of the cross, transformed by the resurrection into the strategy of grace. The tragedy of the cross, transformed by the resurrection into a strategy of a people group. You, me, us, the church. You are his his strategy birthed out of a tragedy. But you are his, you're here. They receive the gift of grace. You are called to spread this message to change the world. And in Acts 15, we get to see the critical moments where we're welcomed into this strategy. Ephesians 2 tells us we are saved by grace through faith in Christ not because of our efforts or works. Grace alone, faith alone, not because of who we are, not because of what we do, but because Jesus did it all. When I asked God, give me a visual, he gave me that song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was good news then, and it's still good news today. Believe in Jesus, the risen, living Savior of the world. I want to invite you to pray with me. And it's, it's a simple prayer. I've been praying this prayer every day. And I want to also set you free from something. If you ever feel convicted like you're not praying enough, good enough, long enough, loud enough, 
As long as you're being authentic and trying to communicate with God, that's what you need. If you're feeling any other kind of conviction, again, that's not grace. Be set free from that today. Be authentic in just your communication with God. And, and I want to just lead you in a very, very simple prayer. So if we could just take a posture of prayer, just bow our heads and just holding our hand out like we want to receive something and say this prayer with me. Say, God, you are good. Thank you for your grace, love, and generosity. I surrender my life to Jesus, the risen Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Use my hands to do your work, my voice to speak your truth. You direct my path. Amen. Hey, today, if you said that prayer for the first time, welcome home. And if you said that prayer for the first time, I want you to either come tell somebody up here, but more importantly, I want you to be baptized today. I'll be standing out at the big red wall. I'd love to celebrate with you. I'd love to be like, today was the day I received the gift of grace. Others of you, maybe today is the day to take your next step. And maybe you've been trying to do this all on your own. God has given us a grace of community as well. Maybe you need to find out, hey, how can I get involved in a group? How can I serve on a team? Because when we serve on a team, we encourage each other. Receive the gifts that God wants to give to you. He wants you to see differently. Put on those lenses, receive his gift. I'll say this every time I ever get to be up here. God loves you. God has a plan for you. He's bigger than any need. Peace out, everybody. See you next week.